Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians 7, we've already worshipped, and now we continue to worship through the proclamation of the Word of God. Everything we do is worship uh, because we do it to the glory of God, to show the evidence that God is alive and God is real and God transforms us. And uh, that's in the big, heavy things in life, and that's in the, the very common, normal, everyday things of life. And uh, that will really come out in today's passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Father, we thank you that you are big and amazing and strong and mighty as we have already sung. You created all things with the word of your power. You sustain all things with the word of your power. Your, your might, your glory, your largeness is beyond what we can comprehend. And we thank you. You are also our Father. You know the very hairs on our head. You know the number of our days. You know every breath, every heartbeat, everything that makes us who we are. And so as we walk through this passage... May you speak and do in us what you love to do, what you desire to do, and what only you can do. Bring hope, bring healing, and maybe even bring salvation. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in our series, uh, Gospel Saturation, the Gospel and All of Life, our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. This particular passage is also from the series, Passages Never Taught in Sunday School Flannel Graph, (laughs) as well as the popular series, He Said What? on Memorial Day weekend. In the first six chapters of this letter, Paul has been dealing with problems in the church that he's very aware of, they're very aware of, and he's addressed them and readdressing them, um, part of this long-standing relationship with this church that he knew really, really well. Spent a long time in the city of Corinth planting this church proclaiming the gospel, pastoring this church from afar after he had to leave. He's dealt with the issues of factionalism, disunity, incest among members, members suing one another, sexual immorality, as we saw last week in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, we make this slight transition where he begins to take us through the rest of the letter, addressing what it seems like it's almost a list of issues that, 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 that they had asked him about or maybe they asked him to address. And you kind of see this repeating phrase, now concerning, now concerning. It's almost like he's just checking the boxes. Okay, let's talk about this now. 
And it begins with this issue in chapter 7 that really piggybacks what he's already talked about in chapter 6 concerning sexual immorality. And it's really how does our faith in Christ, how does the gospel that has changed us affect even things like sexual relationships, things like marriage, divorce, singleness. I'm married to an unbeliever. What do I do about that, Paul? And so chapter 7 just lays all of that out in very practical terms. Not a a whole lot of theology, much as practical instruction. Here's what you do about this, and here's what you do about that. Chapter 7 is is a gift to the church and the family. And to to grasp why Paul would write what he writes in chapter 7, it helps to know more about the culture in which that church lived, in which those people were were saved out of. What is the the Greco-Roman culture that they grew up in? What were they used to? And now how is the gospel wanting to transform that and change that so they no longer look like the culture in which they grew up in? Marriage in the Greco-Roman world was not as much about falling in love or finding your soulmate as it was a business transaction. Who can I marry in order to have the best financial standing, social standing, legal standing, inheritance, hopes? It wasn't about the Hollywood version of falling in love, the rom-com version of falling in love. Women had some rights in marriage, but marriages were still primarily dominated by the men. And this was clear in the the Greco-Roman household. The husband and father was clearly in charge, not in a kind, benevolent kind of rulership, you might say. There might be some nice guys, but but there was a, 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 a clear, unquestioned authority that fell on the man of the house. Marriages were typically arranged, and a good, healthy marriage in a Greco-Roman household was known for its peace, not its love and, and, and closeness and affection, but is there peace in the home? In fact, one historian uh, said that a good husband in a, in a Roman household was known for his restraint. He didn't bully or dominate his wife. That would be a good husband. Not love, not affection, not serving, but he just didn't bully or dominate her. That's how dominant the husband was in those relationships. Now, within that marriage relationship, sex could be looked at one of two ways. It was very common for husbands and wives to only have sex in order to procreate, to have kids. That's the only time they came together, which meant not very often in a a world pre-birth control. Because with increased kids comes increased chances that the inheritance would get messed up. So we don't want to mess the inheritance up. We don't want to mess our financial, legal, social standing up. So we don't want to have more kids than we want to have. But they still had sexual desires, just like the stomach still desires food. So what did they do with those desires? Well, they would turn to household slaves or prostitutes. And so sex in marriage was for procreation, and recreational sex was with other people. If they impregnated someone... Just leave the baby out in the elements. Let the baby die. Who cares? That was the, the normal societal operating mode. So these would be the ones to whom Paul was writing when he would say in chapter 6, verse 18, to flee sexual immorality. This is what, how you have been living, but in Christ, don't do that anymore. Don't, don't, don't have this relationship with your wife and then go sleep with a bunch of other people to, to have your recreational sex. The other group of people, the way sex was viewed, were adherents to Plato, Platonic relationships, you might think, 
who saw the spiritual side of life as better and far superior to the physical nature of life. And so serious, mature individuals didn't, didn't mully their hands in the everyday physical affairs of life like sex. We're, we're more serious. We're more mature. We're pursuing spiritual things. And so they practiced abstination, celibacy. They just didn't engage at all. And these people that were saved out of this culture were bringing that mentality into the church, into their Christian marriages. And so you had people in marriages practicing celibacy or abstaining from sex because they saw it as dirty, because it was related to the physical side of life. And so Paul's word to them was chapter 6, verse 20, glorify God in your body, which is really a word to both of them, but particularly those who would abstain. The physical body is not divorced from the spiritual essence of who you are. In fact, your physical body, as Kevin walked us through last week, is the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. As Tim Keller wrote, you had two camps, the pagans and the prudes. Even today, Dr. Mark Regeneris, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, we'll call him Dr. Mark. In his book, Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy, explores the pagan or indulgent aspect of our culture today and where the age of marriage today is creeping closer to 30, which is, which is historically a high number. One researcher from the University of Minnesota predicts that soon, fully 33% of people in their 20s will never get married. The, the historical norm is 10%. Dr. Mark, in his work with the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, found in his nationwide survey of over 15,000 adults ages 18 to 60, that the most common response when asked the question, when in your current or most recent relationship did you have sex for the first time, the most common response given by 32% of men under the age of 40 was before the relationship began. So people are hooking up, and then they go into a relationship with each other. This is the, the pagan, the sexual immoral side of our culture today. His findings, his basic synopsis in the book, for the, for the delay of marriage, the increase of singleness, is that we have cheapened sex, indulged in sex more often, and it's no longer reserved for marriage, so why get married? And to whom Paul would say, flee sexual immorality. But the church as a whole, generally speaking, has probably been more uh, in the prude camp. If you've grown up in church, you've heard countless messages about the dangers of sexual sin, the evils of sex outside of marriage. And to be clear, all right, biblically speaking, there is sex in marriage and there's porneia, sexual immorality. That's it. Sex is reserved for marriage and everything else is sexual immorality. So that is clearly what the Bible teaches throughout the scriptures. Let's also be clear when we say the term marriage. I think we have to be clear from time to time about this. We're talking about the union of one man and one woman. If you disagree with either of those, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's walk through scriptures. Let's walk through the historical understanding of the scriptures, the historical teachings of the church, not just the last 30 or 40 years. And so despite what our courts rule, how our laws may change, marriage is only marriage when it's one man and one woman. Monogamous relationship until death do you part. No other definition of marriage is marriage as God has created and ordained. And so the church's strongest message in our lifetime if you grew up in the church, has been sex, don't do it unless you're married. That's pretty much it. What we haven't been as strong in proclaiming is, if you're married, 
have sex often and let it be as amazing as God intended for it to be. All right. Amen, this stuff. The Song of Solomon, Hebrew erotic love poetry, a celebration of sex in marriage. Proverbs 5. Find a solid Bible teacher, husbands and wives, who's done a series on the Song of Solomon. And as a husband and wife, listen to it. Read the book. And then go and do likewise. Enjoy what God's intended for us to enjoy. Glorify God in your bodies. The church also hasn't been as strong in proclaiming, if you do stumble and fall into sexual sin, there is still forgiveness and restoration available to you. God can and desires to still redeem you, your past, give you a fresh start. And while past sexual sins do add baggage to your life, there are consequences to sexual sins unlike other sins. We saw this in chapter 6. Sexual sin is a sin against a man's own body. It is not more powerful. Your sexual history is not more powerful than your identity in Christ. As a holy, blameless son or daughter of your Father in heaven, the Lord does not expect you to carry around guilt and condemnation because of your past or present struggle with sexual sin. Jesus wants the rose. Google it. Not right now. But he does. Paul's going to deal with both of these ideas, fleeing sexual immorality and glorifying God in your, in your bodies in this passage and throughout chapter 7. In a real way, we see that sex can be a vehicle through which we wage warfare and through which we worship. Sex experienced and enjoyed as God ordained and created is to be experienced and enjoyed helps us wage war against our sinful flesh, against the sinful world system in which we live, and against Satan himself in fleeing sexual immorality. And sex rightly enjoyed helps us worship God by glorifying God in our bodies. We get to do both. But it has to be done His way. God made us. God's wired us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's designed us to function within certain parameters. Just as much as we enjoy fire within a fireplace and a fire pit, and we can sit and stare in a fire for hours at a time and just soak it up, so also fire can burn the house down if it's outside of the parameters in which it is safe. And God has designed sex in a very similar way, as well as everything else, food, sleep, rest, everything, family. So how can sex be beneficial as warfare and worship? Number one, if it's confined to marriage and regularly enjoyed by both spouses. Now, Paul's lifestyle, his preference for celibacy that we see in this passage was well known to the Corinthian believers. He didn't really have to say it. He kept saying, as I am. I prefer that you be as I am. And so he would seem to be in the prude camp, abstain from sex. Paul's in their corner. And at first glance from reading verse 1, which Paul is restating something that was said among those in Corinth, it seems as though that, that first reading of verse 1, he is in their camp. But as the gospel does, the gospel in Jesus is its own camp. It's not co-opted by any camp. and cuts against every camp. So just when you think, oh, yeah, he's on my side, he's going to come in there and cut you. And the gospel's going to cut and the gospel's going to heal. And Paul's going to do that. He's going to push back on both camps, the pagan camp and the prude camp. But we also need to read and understand a good translation of verse 1. The, the King James Version says, verse 1, 
Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The, the ESV, the NIV both say, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then the CSB, the one I read from, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Now literally in the Greek, the translation touch is most accurate. But what does it mean? Paul is using a euphemism. A euphemism is a polite or softer way to say something. Instead of being harsh, instead of being blunt, you can use a euphemism. We do it all the time. Someone didn't, uh, wasn't fired from their job, they were let go from their job. Someone isn't unemployed, they are between jobs. Or they're holding out for a management position. Someone isn't short, they are vertically challenged. Right? Someone's not bald, they are handsome, striking, chiseled. All euphemisms. What Paul wrote in the Greek was a softer, more polite expression for a sexual relationship. What Paul meant is best seen in the CSV translation, it is not good to use a woman for sex. The prude camp, the anti-sex camp, had this expression. This is what they said. Remember the culture. Sex was either occasionally done with your wife for procreation or indulged in as recreation with people you didn't know or prostitutes or household slaves. This was a misuse of sex, and sex was being abused as women were used for sex. And Paul agrees with this basic idea, don't use women for sex. And so just on that verse, the anti-sex abstainers would be cheering, yes, right, Paul, we've been saying that all along. We had, it, we had it right, but then he goes to give pushback and qualifications, beginning in verse 4. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. See, sex was being abused by a large portion of that culture but that doesn't mean there's not a right and beautiful place for sex to be fully enjoyed. Now, notice it's within the confines of a monogamous one man, one woman, not polygamy, but a monogamous marriage. It's not uh, only something that is to be a part of a normal, healthy marriage. It's actually called a marital duty, like some translations say conjugal duty. In other words, it's not optional. It's expected. If you're married, you will have a sexual relationship that is healthy and vibrant as a follower of Christ. There's a lot of debate among different religious groups back then about how often this should happen to fulfill this duty. Three times a month, uh, two to three times a week, every three or four days. You, you have to, as a married couple, figure out the frequency that is right for you. I'm not suggesting you pull out a calendar and put stickers on it, but you as a couple, depending on where you're at and what season of life you're in, depending on what age the kids are, depending on what season of the year it is, depending on all kinds of factors, you have to figure out what is right and healthy for you. Notice also in terms of sexuality, within the marriage covenant, there is equality. A wife does not own her own body, but it belongs to the husband. Now, that's not shocking in the first century. Duh. Husband owns everything. What was shocking was the idea that a husband's body does not belong to him but belongs to his wife. Now, this was revolutionary, to assert a woman's right and authority over the body of her husband. Again, to those who say the Bible or complementarianism is patriarchal and oppressive to women, you just need to read and understand the Bible. 
Because Jesus and Paul and the, and, the, and the scriptures are continually elevating the status of women, right? This is just another example. And in the first century, to wives with husbands who were continually ignoring them, heading out for recreational sex with prostitutes or household slaves, they could take this passage from Paul and go to their husbands and, and say, no more. You belong to me. You cannot indulge any more in that. So you should not be hearing a man preaching a passage about sex and think, oh, great, a man talking about sex. He's just going to get what he wants. That's what men do. It's not at all true. It's not at all biblical. There is mutual equality throughout these verses, and what she wants and desires and needs is just as important as what he wants, desires, and needs. Have those conversations. I tell every fiance I've done premarital counseling with, every young man, if you're coming into marriage and you think sex and marriage is all about you recreating in the marriage bed what you've just watched for the last 10 years of your life sinfully, then you're going to crush your wife. You can't do that. It's not what sex and marriage is all about. You fulfilling the fantasies and imaginations that you've been watching. It's about serving It's about asking her. It's about being kind and gracious and generous. So you see this in these verses. Wives, your voice in this issue matters just as much as his voice. So speak up. Speak up. Say yes or say no. You see in these verses Paul pushing back against those Engaging in sexual immorality by confining to sex, confining sex to marriage only. And Paul's pushing back against celibacy and the anti-sex crowd by saying, if you're married, have sex often. Why? Because Paul knew what God ordained and created when he created us anatomically and physiologically as sexual creatures. And he made sex as more than just a purpose to have children, but he made it enjoyable, much like food. F- food fuels this combustible engine that we call our human body, but God gave us taste buds. In the same way, sex does create life within life, but he made it enjoyable, fun. We saw last week in the passage that Kevin walked us through, sex can be also abused and destructive outside of its proper confines. And in our hyper-sexualized culture today, part of how we make ourselves distinct is by fully enjoying this gift of sex in marriage, but only in marriage. And not as this one area of marriage that's always amazing, despite how unhealthy our marriage is, but as the outworking of a healthy marriage relationship. Like if you're, if you're fighting and bickering all the time, but it's still amazing in the marriage bed, something's wrong. Like somehow you have made a, a distinction between the physical and the spiritual, emotional, relational. And that's all bad, and that's supposedly good. What, what are y'all doing? Something's not good. Just as wrong as a husband and wife who never have sex because of conflict, coldness, or other relational issues. Sex is this amazing opportunity God's given us with with another person to be naked and unashamed, totally transparent, totally real, authentic. We lay ourselves bare before this person, just as we do before God, yet we are fully loved fully embraced, fully received, fully served. 
not because we have performed or earned. And so we're not holding sex and marriage up as some kind of reward or punishment if my spouse doesn't do what I think they ought to do. No, 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 no. We give it freely to one another and receive it fully from each other. Because as we are before God, naked and not ashamed, so we are before our spouses, naked and not ashamed, fully enjoying the unconditional love of marriage and the unconditional love of God. And in the same way it is hard for us to be naked and unashamed before God, it can also be hard for us with our spouses. And it takes humility, and it takes time, and it takes trust, and it takes forgiveness, and it takes repentance. It takes the gospel. Keep coming back to that gospel, right? Tuesday, Jennifer and I will uh, have been married 19 years. So speaking from 19 years of marriage experience, by his grace, not only does Jesus want to get you there, he will get you there. Where you're flourishing sexually in your marriage and where you and your spouse are enjoying each other in a Song of Solomon kind of way, in a Proverbs kind, 5 kind of way. Husbands intoxicated with the love of their spouses. Where sex with your spouse is actually worship. Why? It's not because you've learned techniques. It's because you're naked and unashamed. And there's transparency and there's honesty and there's authenticity between you and this one other person in the entire world that you can share this with. That's it. There's oneness. There's trust. There's humility. Not, you'll never get to a point where, oh, man, we've arrived. We've got this figured out. It ebbs and flows through seasons of life. Nobody ever just, oh, we, we got this good all the time. There's never any issues. They're lying to you. Because you're in a relationship with another sinner, and you're a sinner. There's always going to be issues you're working through. But there can be a steady, progressive health and vitality through the course of your marriage, where it just gets better and better and better. And you and her know it's good. You don't have to brag. You don't have to spike the football as long as you both are content and satisfied. And that's the key. Both of you. Both of you. The marriage bed is not a place for the husband to dominate or rule over his wife. There is equality. You both have rights over each other. You both have a voice. Secondly, sex can be warfare and worship if its abstaining is limited and focused on prayer. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come back together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So sex can be warfare and worship if it's enjoyed fully by both spouses within marriage. And if it's abstaining, if you abstain from sex, it's limited and focused on prayer. There is a time and place for abstaining. But only if both partners are in harmonious agreement. Literally in the Greek, in symphony. When you both agree for a time. There has to be harmonious, unified agreement to abstain for a short period of time. It's not permanent. But to focus on matters that are so pressing and so serious that praying together has become a greater priority than to wage war against sexual immorality and glorify God in your bodies through engaging sexually. This harmonious agreement, not only, uh, uh, again, it gives the wife a voice in in a culture that she normally didn't have a voice. This mutual consent. 
keeps one of the spouses from becoming the super spiritual spouse who loves Jesus more because they want to pray and not have sex with their spouse. There's a place for prayer with your spouse that is a spiritual act of worship, and there is a place for sex with your spouse that is also a spiritual act of worship, one not greater than the other. Again, this was a thing in the Corinthian church. It can't be a thing today. This low view of sex that's just fulfilling some base subhuman urge that, that you just have to get it over with so you can get on the more serious things of life. That's a wrong view of sex. It's out of step with the Bible, what God's ordained and created. Sex can be worship and just as spiritual as praying. But there can and could be occasions to abstain and deal with pressing matters. As we see here, sex as warfare. It's an interesting relationship between a healthy marriage and prayer and sex. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Much of what is required for two spouses to pray together is also required for a healthy sexual relationship. Humility, grace, transparency, understanding, honor. And much of what makes it difficult for spouses to pray together is much of what makes it difficult for them to grow in health and their sexual intimacy. And many of us grew up in environments where this wasn't discussed, it wasn't talked about, it wasn't explained. And so we have all this baggage of sex being taboo or mysterious because it wasn't. It wasn't explained to us. We, we, we maybe had one talk with the parents, the talk. Or maybe you didn't have any talk. You just figured it out from TV and friends at school. Yeah, that went well. And so a lot of us are still uncomfortable with something that we are, is very human and we should be more comfortable with. Some of you might have been wishing. I, I wish you'd have made a post in the city that you are going to talk about this. Could have warned my kids. Like if your kids are old enough to be in this room right now, then it's time to begin those conversations if you haven't already begun them. Let's quit being hush-hush about it in our families, but bring it to the light and have open, honest conversations. Train your kids to understand what sex is, the place for sex, so they can be discerning and wise as they get older and they begin to face sexual temptation, which is probably a lot sooner than you realize. And then when they get older and they have spouses of their own, they can have healthy conversations, and it's not as uncomfortable as it is for a lot of us in this room. If our only conversations about sex are either we sound like we're in a locker room with a bunch of guys or we don't discuss it, we're not really showing the culture anything distinct that shows the reality of Jesus in us. And if you're not in a good place sexually in your marriage, a good place to start is in prayer. Prayer with your spouse praying together, praying against the desires of the enemy to divide you, praying for the Spirit to draw your minds and hearts together, to increase this transparency, this trust, this oneness that can then be shared, shared physically. But even this time of abstaining in prayer is not supposed to last forever, forever, but come together again so you won't be tempted into sexual immorality. Again, sex as warfare. We see this throughout the passage. We get married, we have sex so we don't fall into sexual sin, and a marriage that is sexless is just as sinful as sexual immorality outside of marriage. Like, you have to see this. To be married and to not have sex, obviously there could be physical issues, sickness, health, seasons of life. But taking all that into account, a marriage that does not have sex is just as sinful as sexual immorality outside of marriage. And, and you need to talk to somebody. 
Thirdly, sex can be warfare and worship if someone has been given the gift of celibate, joyful service to Christ. What about those who aren't married? What about the singles? Paul has a word for them, beginning in verse 6. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Paul has a preference. Paul has a wish. Paul does not have a command here. Paul is at his pastoral best. Where Scripture is clear and strong, Paul is clear and strong. And where it's just a preference, he is incredibly gracious and permissive. There are times where Paul will say, imitate me. And there are times like this where Paul says, well, this is what I prefer, but really you're going to have to make this discernment. You're going to have to figure this out for yourself. Now, it's not 100% provable, but a lot of people think Paul was probably married. Just based on how much he knew about marriage and the way he wrote about marriage, the, the, the group of Jews that he was a part of when he was in Judaism, uh, a lot of those guys were married. And so a lot of people think, they don't know, that he was married, he comes to faith in Christ, leaves Judaism behind, his wife leaves him behind. Could be, could not be. Whatever the case, by this point in his life, Everyone knew he lived a celibate life, and that was his conviction, but he refused to impose that conviction on anyone, but simply stated his reasons for holding the conviction, and he'll further elaborate all of this later in chapter 7. But in Paul's mind, the most preferable state was to be single, joyful, and celibate. The second most preferred state was to be married and enjoying a healthy sexual relationship with your spouse. The least desirable position was to burn with a desire for sex and not be married. Paul would say, get married. Now, some criticize this passage because it seems like Paul is painting a very low view of marriage. We're just getting married because we're like a bunch of animals with this burning desire that we can't get rid of, so we might as well get married and have, a, have an outlet for that. Like, can you imagine at a wedding ceremony? We're so glad you're here today to celebrate that at least they have an outlet for their sexual desires. Be kind of, yeah, that's kind of weird. But understand this letter that, that Paul is writing is addressing specific issues and questions with specific answers. A, a certain group of people, the Corinthian church. His, his higher view of marriage, like in Ephesians 5, was a, a general letter written to a bunch of churches to be spread around. So you get a, a higher viewpoint of his theology of marriage. This is not the full outworking of Paul's theology of marriage in this letter. But in either letter, letter Marriage is a gift to two people because it's not good for man to be alone. In marriage, we experience this level of intimacy and closeness unlike any other relationship we get to have. Our marriages are demonstrations of the gospel as husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. As wives respect and follow the leadership of their husband as the church does to Christ. Marriage is a gift of God's grace to most people, even those who aren't followers of Christ. They get to enjoy marriage. Singleness is a gift to some people. Now, the gift here is not just being single, but being single and satisfied. Not burning with unfulfilled sexual desire. If you're consumed with the desire for physical intimacy, so much so that it's a 
hindrance to your joyful service to Christ, then you may not have been given the gift of joyful contentment and you should get married. Not necessarily to the first living, breathing, available person, but certainly not waiting for some Hollywoodized, romanticized, uh, knight in shining armor unicorn that doesn't exist except in your imaginations. Or I guess it could be a fair maiden if you're a single guy. This gifting is much like the spiritual gifts that we'll dig into in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a gift of the Spirit, maybe for life, maybe for a season of life, to enable you to serve Christ and edify the body of Christ. And in this case, it's the ability to be single and not consumed with sexual desire. And, and, and let's not spiritually bully singles by telling them, well, if you love Jesus enough, you would, you would be content and you'd be happy being single. You must not love Jesus enough. Paul doesn't do that. We shouldn't do that either. Some have been gifted for that. Most haven't. Most people are going to get married. Now, at the same time, being single is not some deficiency in being less than in the church or the Christian world. Paul will later paint a beautiful picture of how and why he prefers being single and, and how he can give, uh, the single person can give so much good attention to the work of Christ and it doesn't make them more spiritual or better Christian, but if you've been given the gift of joyful contentment and singleness, we as a church want to celebrate that and say yes. Unleashing you in the body of Christ. You're just as valuable as husbands and wives in the kingdom of God. You have the gift of availability. Usually you have more disposable income, unless you're a college student. Then you have more time. And even if you're only single for this season, capitalize on that. See this season as a gift to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Trusting the Lord every day, every week to grow you, mature you, so that if or when this season of singleness ends, you will be ready to meet that person. There's so much more to all of this. As I'm, as I'm thinking through this, this could just go on for a long time. So many Follow-up conversations probably need to happen. Paul is very practical with this, but there's still, you know, 70 different ways that this applies directly to each person in this room. And so take what the, the truths of the Scripture, take what the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, and now let's go have follow-up conversations with others in the body of Christ. What does this need to look like in my life for this season of life? Especially if you're not in a healthy place sexually either in your marriage or in your singleness. Not to mention the baggage from past sins that may be drudged up this morning, and now you're fighting shame and condemnation. Please know for younger singles and couples, there are people in this church who have been married a long time, and they're healthy, and that's key. Being married a long time doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. Search them out. And couples with health and vitality, no matter how long you've been married, make yourselves available to others, singles and those who are newly married or in the first several years of marriage. Have those conversations. Be open, veterans of marriage. Be open about your struggles. It's not all good all the time. Let's not play games. Be open about what you've worked through and struggled through and how God has brought healing and and hope, and joy. And for all of us, let's fly to Jesus. Let's put our trust and hope in Him as, as the remedy for what ails us the most in this, in this area of life. 
Overall, we see in this passage that sex is more than sex. In a culture where it's been so commercialized and dehumanized to the degree that sex robots are now a fast-growing industry, sex trafficking is flourishing, and we're amazingly desensitized to sexual temptation and sin, we need to know that sex is more than just a physical act. Sex is more than sex. How we view and experience sex can be warfare against Satan and the sinful temptation to be sexually immoral, but it can also be God-glorifying worship in our bodies and an incredible source of joy and love and intimacy with the person that God has put you with. This can be a healthy sexual relationship in marriage, or this can be joyful celibacy and singleness. Wherever you are, no matter how much damage has been done, no matter how much baggage you may have, no matter how distant you may feel. And when you feel distance between you and God, and when you feel distance between you and your spouse, sometimes it is really hard to get up and begin pursuing each other. No matter where you're at, there's always hope because of Christ and his gospel. Trust Jesus to begin to heal. Trust Jesus with your spouse the distance there may be in this issue. Trust Jesus to cleanse and forgive you and know that in Christ there's no shame or condemnation. He no longer sees you as dirty and unclean. You don't have to see yourself in the same way. What would it look like for the Crossing Church to be a family of families and a family of singles who are experiencing the joy of Christ in our marriages, in our sex in our marriages, and in our singleness? By God's grace, Let's get there, all right? Our city needs it. The nations need it. And let's be open and honest about it to others around us. Father, we're so thankful for the hope and the joy of Christ. What we get to experience as your people. Not only in life, but also in salvation. However this has fallen on everyone in this room, Father, I pray that you would bring the hope of the gospel to bear. That no one would see their history, their shame, their sinfulness as being more powerful than your gospel. Than the love and the power of Jesus Christ to transform transform past, present, and future. No matter where husbands and wives may be in the Crossing Church about this issue, may the hope of the gospel overwhelm them today and help them to see a way forward. We thank you that you not only have the power to accomplish this, but you have the desire to accomplish it. Make us that people, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.